All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the 25th day of May 2021. I do want to remind you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe uh, to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. You can call our office here in New York City at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours in New York City. I would also encourage you to uh, consider subscribing to Chen, Litter's, Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chenpicks.com is the place to go for that. Chen uh, has especially a uh, strong track record in the biotech sectors, but he also has done very well in the mining and in the energy sectors as well. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Go to ChenPicks.com. And we also like to remind you to uh, consider subscribing to Michael Oliver's letter at OliverMSA.com. Michael will be with me in a few minutes from now to give us his latest ideas about the markets. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And also want to encourage you to continue, continue sending along whatever comments you might have about this show, uh, good or bad or indifferent or whatever, send away whatever your thoughts are about our show, let us know. I want to thank our sponsors, um, this week's sponsors that make this show viable, economically possible, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, El Oro Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Firefox Gold, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, and I should say that I remain extremely bullish on the prospects for all of our sponsors in 2021 as they are all gearing up for the exploration program this summer uh, and going into the fall as well in many cases. I uh, Last week was the Metals Investor Forum, uh, and I gave my presentation, a 20-minute presentation, which you can now view. It's a video, a YouTube video. If you go to uh, miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, scroll down to the second half of the homepage, and you'll see at today's day at 525 a link that will take you right to my uh, my presentation um, in which I talk about the parallels between the Mississippi bubble of 1720 uh, and how disastrous that turned out to be. We're in in my view very much in the same uh, in the same predicament as John Law was with the Mississippi bubble, uh, only on a on a much grander scale. I I fear. Anyway, you can uh, watch that 20-minute presentation if you care to. Go to miningstocks.com, scroll down to the bottom half of the page, second half of the page, important economic headings, and you'll see uh, on May 25th uh, a link 
that will take you to my talk um, concerning the United States uh, compared to the Mississippi bubble. Um, I also invited some companies that I really think you need to keep an eye on um, for this year as the exploration season gets underway. Goliath Resources, Firefox Gold, Gold Source Mines, White Rock Minerals, and Newfound Gold. One of the hottest stocks on the planet right now, Newfound Gold. Uh, They will be making presentations, and I'll keep you posted as to when they're available to watch those presentations. Um, I've titled today's show as America Facing Stagflation. Uh, Lynn Alden and Michael Oliver return. We will be talking to Michael in just a couple of minutes uh, from now. Uh, The last time we spoke to him, he was pretty much seeing an equity market weakness but didn't see a crash. He saw sort of a layered decline. He also thought that at least in the near term, we would see uh, both gold and the treasury markets benefiting from that. Um, But, of course, we're seeing much higher inflation rates now. Is it possible that we might see a decline in the the bond markets uh, along with an equity market decline? Uh, as, uh, inflation has reared its ugly head for the first time in many years um, to something like uh, an annual rate of something over 4%. Well, it's certainly more than the Fed has been uh, bargaining for. We'll see if, the, if it's a transitory issue or not. Uh, it's certainly one of the things we're going to want to talk to Lynn Alden about as well today. Uh, so we do have an inflation problem. We'll see if that's going to have something to do with, uh, w- with the issues. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking to David Rosenberg. Uh, David is more of a deflationist or a disinflationist. And, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, John. Um, we, we also um, had our, our in John Williams with us, uh, who is of the hyperinflation school. So there's various ideas out there. So we want to talk to – we do really want to talk to Lynn Adam. Uh, Lynn Alden in the second half of today's show to see what she has to talk about. Now, I was reading some of her uh, some of her latest writings uh, in preparation for today's talk, and she's really looking at um, the possibilities of the 70s, uh, not so much the 1970s stagflation, which seems like a real possibility in my view. Uh, having lived through that time, it's, it feels a lot like that to me. But she has some very good arguments for comparing the uh, the current period that we're in now with that of the 1940s. Uh, I think very well reasoned, uh, very well reasoned ideas as to why we may be looking at something much more like the 1940s inflationary situation, where the federal government were uh, has to spend uh, has to spend huge amounts of money to get things going again. Uh, fiscal stimulus rather than monetary stimulus, as she points out, it is very difficult uh, when these long credit cycles, long debt cycles near the end. It's very difficult for monetary policy to have any effect, any significant effect, and the only thing left is fiscal stimulus. So we'll talk to to Lynn Alden in the second half of today's show to see what she has to say, uh, and her explanation should be very, very interesting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, right now, though, we're going to take a commercial break, uh, and when we come back, Michael Oliver will be with us to give us some of his ideas uh, about what he sees right now in the markets, certainly um, turning bearish, I think on on the uh, on equities, um, turning bearish on on the dollar. From what I've seen in his most recent remarks, so we'll ask uh, Michael to comment on those key markets when we come back. So we're going to go to commercial break now, uh, but don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me uh, Michael Oliver once again. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to sign up for Michael's excellent work. And he provides uh, a couple of different uh, options for you to subscribe to. The uh, The weekly report is, uh, is a main report that he puts out. But he puts out reports during the week when there are very significant changes in the market. They're very timely reports that he puts out. And then there's a gold and silver report as well, which is uh, excellent. Uh, they're all great, and they're all been all have been very very helpful to me over the last number of years. So thank you again, Michael, for for coming on with us today. It's really always good to have you here. Um, I, I want to ask you in your headline last week on the weekly uh, it's the weekend 360 report. You said U.S. stocks the situation ripens. What do you mean by ripens? Well. Technically, we think they're in the process of topping. Um, one of the key factors in, in defining a top is when your leadership fails. And not necessarily so obvious on price charts, but on a relative performance basis, if you go back and look at major tops in the stock market, let's say uh, the 2000.com top, the NASDAQ 100, which reflected that leadership back then, uh, began to drop in price, not drastically, but while the S&P didn't so much. In other words, it, relative performance basis, it started to collapse. In fact, if you just plot a spread between the one and the other, NASDAQ and the S&P, you see that the leadership, which had been the dot-com, the Internet, so forth, was relatively collapsing to the broad market. So the broad market kept saying, oh, gee, we're fine. In fact, in that occurred, by the way, in the first and uh, second quarter of 2000. And by August of 2000, S&P was back up near its highs, ignoring the loss of leadership. Mm-hmm. The same thing occurred in 2006 and 7, when your leadership then had been financials and uh, home builders especially. Mm-hmm. They collapsed in relative performance and actually started down in that trend well before the market top. But the market said, oh, no, we don't care about that. And Bernanke reassured us, he says, there's no housing bubble. 
Okay. Well, there was, and the leadership warned you ahead of time that, uh, okay, your leadership's gone. And it's not a simple matter of rotating to some other little sector to say, make up the difference and, oh, okay, a new leader. That doesn't happen. Well, this time around, we had a real explosion in the tech sector, particularly, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, and Facebook uh, last summer vertical price action, much more so than the S&P. So your leadership was very strong. But since then, the spread between the NASDAQ and the S&P has virtually collapsed. And it, it shows up in the, not so much on the price charts, but in the, the difference between the two when you measure them. Now, some people have noticed that, but they've said, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, again, the same story. There's other sectors doing well. Financials are doing well mm-hmm. now and so forth and so on. Uh, we think they're denying reality. Now, when we look at the technicals of the S&P, the broad market, it is dancing, literally dancing on what we consider our, our, our first sell triggers. Yet last week and, and the prior week, traded down to our sell numbers, didn't close the week below them, and then rallied. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. ooh. You know, the, it knew mm-hmm. something was there. <laughs> we, we use the word inevitable in our weekend report. We think now that that structure's been set, it's just a matter of which week in the next probably three or four weeks, does the S&P finally break that? In which case, you start to get your net trend downside. Mm. And, of course, anybody in other markets has to then say, well, what does that mean for the T-bonds? Right, exactly. My next question, yeah. 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 Uh, Well, you know, interest rates have been rising. Bonds have been selling off. In fact, bonds, T-bond futures, made their highest monthly close, I think it was July and then August. Oh, coincident with gold. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and they both declined, T-bonds more so than gold. Um, but T-bonds are now set technically for a very sharp rally, meaning a drop in rates. Now, why would you have a drop in rates if you have commodity price inflation, which is pretty much accepted now, finally, uh, that we do have that? Because there's an asset manager flow of capital of, the, of those managers who doubt the sustainability and viability of the stock market at this point. And when mm-hmm. they have that doubt, where do they move their money? Mm-hmm. Well, they tend to move it into government bonds, especially long end, and they tend to move it into gold. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing now is the T-bonds are starting to catch up to gold's upturn. And those two markets turning up is an indication that the stock market's probably about to turn down. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think there's going to be a stock market crash. I think we had that in March last year. I think if you start a bear market now in stocks, it's going to be more of a layered type event. Like most stock market tops, in fact, aren't crashes. The 2000 top wasn't. It went down in layers. The 2007, 2008 bear market only got crash effect at the tail end of the market. So I think if we top now in stocks, it's not some drastic overnight, you know, they pull the rug out from under it. It's more of a confusing downturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, in, in other words, every time you drop and it goes back up a bit, the longs say, oh, it was a bargain. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it fools them all along the way. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. watch gold and T-bonds. But T-bonds right now, I think, are very important. They're starting to break out. And if they break out on our momentum technicals, I think, it's, it's again, it's reaffirming gold at the present time. Because mm-hmm. uh, T-bonds are in sync with gold at the present time. I think that mm-hmm. linkage between T-bond price direction and gold price direction will change. But I don't think it's going to change now. I think for for the next couple quarters, it's probably still going to be in sync. At some point, we're going to have the event where T-bonds go down, meaning rates really go up because Mm -hmm. of the inflation. Mm 
uh, and gold continues upside, where mm-hmm. T-bonds go down. But we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, the real no. big event right now is something very few people are looking at. Mm-hmm. The dollar. Yep. And the euro. The euro is more than 57% of the dollar index is waiting. So watch the euro. Our very long-term momentum work turned positive on the euro and negative on the dollar back in early 2017. And at that point forward, basically, the price level of which momentum said, okay, euro is now going to go up, dollar down, basically, they never really got much back below those levels uh, in the euro or back above them in the dollar. But they didn't collapse either. Dollar didn't collapse. It just went down about 10%, 2018, rallied back up to about where our sell level was last year, and then collapsed again back to the bottom end of its multi-year range. And if you look at a price chart now, I think the key is price. Momentum already says dollar's no good, euro's going to be better. Okay? Mm-hmm. But price charts are very clear. If you look at a, scroll up a, a monthly price chart of the euro futures, mm-hmm. if you want, and, and the dollar index, go back to at least, oh, 2010 or something like that, you'll see there's a line on both charts that defines for the euro what had been a floor, now a ceiling, and if you're approaching the ceiling again, if you break through about 123 on the euro, right now it's been the 122s, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's going to start to launch because the price guys are going to get excited. Reverse that for the dollar. The dollar has a pivotal level at about 89 dollar index. Mm-hmm. We're now 89.60. Okay. Mm-hmm. You touch 89 again, and I don't think they're going to be able to, I think it's going to start to whoosh. In other words, these two quiet markets the major foreign exchange markets, which have not been volatile on a percentage basis for at least five or six years, are suddenly going to get noisy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to have wave effects on a lot of assets and be a second, uh, you know, a seconding of the gold upside, Mm -hmm. uh, the the weak dollar. We say, Mm -hmm. yep, okay, you knew all along I was going down. You didn't wait for me, (laughs) okay? Uh, And I I think we're at that point. Mm hmm well, if the dollar gets weak, then that, you know, as you say, it might ding gold higher, silver, I would think commodities yep. in general, uh, right? We might see another, well. yep. and then you're going to have, again, more inflationary concerns, which is going mm-hmm. to put pressure on the Fed to continue to print more money to try to hold interest rates down. Michael, do you see, you and I are old enough to remember, I think you're old enough to remember the 1970s, I'm mm-hmm. a few years older than you, but we remember the Fed got behind the curve. They continued to you know, rates, inflation kept going up. The Fed would allow rates, rates were going mm-hmm. up, whether the Fed allowed them or not. Rates were rising. They left them rise. They tried to tamper. They, they tried to, to keep them from going nuts. But they were always behind. The rates weren't rising as fast as inflation until Volcker came in finally and slammed the brakes on, you know, put, put the brakes mm-hmm. on. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think they can do that again at this point in time, uh, any time like they could then. But uh, do you see do you see sort of a stagflation situation like that? Because we had this high levels of unemployment, the Fed, you know, was behind the curve in the sense of of, of getting con- inflation under control. You think it's possible it might get away from these guys? Inflation well, might get away it, from. Them. I think it already is, and I, I think that when you hear the concern by investors that oh the Fed might taper, so gold sells off that day. You know, it was last <laughs> week or something. Yeah. Volker, I'm not Volker. <laughs> Powell said something. And yeah. um, that is silliness because the one factor that you've got to pay attention to if you're in gold is the stock market. 
mm-hmm. because the one asset category that has not hurt the Fed, that has not been something they've had to put a fire out, has been the stock market. Mm-hmm. Ever since the March low last year, which was a very brief collapse, very deep, it's been going up, 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 up. So mm-hmm. it's not been a factor that's, that's caused them to keep a loose monetary policy. Other things mm-hmm. have. But that one has not been a, a, a problem for them. What if it suddenly becomes a problem? Mm-hmm. What if it suddenly starts down and, you know, the six months we find the S&P is, oh, it's down 20% off its highs. No, not collapsing, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh-oh, because it's a psychological thing. And Bernanke wrote a paper on this. I, I keep citing this in many interviews. In 2003, he wrote a paper on why the Fed needs to defend the stock market, primarily for psychological reasons, mm-hmm. to keep people spending money rather than saving money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was explicit in his argument. And, well, yeah. if the stock market becomes a negative now, that's suddenly mm-hmm. going to – talk of Fed tapering is just gone. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and plus, you'll have more policy, fiscal policies as well. Because psychologically, even if you're not a, uh, the one percenter in the stock market, you, you're employed by a company and you see its stock go down, mm-hmm. you've been around long enough to know, uh-oh, I might get laid off. Yeah, exactly. So it scares you, too. Right. So they, they have to defend their monetary policy and keep it on going if that stock market wobbles, and I think it's about to. Mm-hmm. Well, it is psychological, but there's also a real reality to a declining stock market too, Michael, in the sense that pension funds and other fund managers have had to go out on the risk curve you mm-hmm. know, because they're not getting any, they're not getting any interest rates. So mm-hmm. now what are you going to do if you've got pension fund obligations and the <laughs> stock market goes down 20%? And you have oh, an aging well. population now that's going to demand, yeah. you know, their their pension funds. So this is another issue, I think. And then then we come along, and you know, all of a sudden, Mr. Biden pumps six trillion dollars into the system with with fiscal pol- fiscal uh, stimulus uh, that has to be print, uh, printed. And there's nobody around the world that wants to buy treasuries anymore at these rates. Anyway, no well, more foreign money the coming dollar, in. To buy the dollar's also degrading the treasury. Oh yeah, exactly. Okay. The dollar they'll get a double whammy. The mm-hmm, dollar goes mm-hmm. down, and the treasury uh, and the treasury value, the, do- the dollar mm-hmm. value of the treasuries go down, a double whammy. So it's hard to see, you know, what asset classes eventually will end up, other than gold, silver, maybe tangibles, um, you know, commodities in general. Although, mm-hmm. if if you have such an inflationary problem globally that it that it really stops commerce from taking place, I don't know how bullish that is for commodities in the short run either. But that's another story. Um, what, what are you What are you looking at then? Gold looks. I see we're knocking on the door of uh, nineteen hundred now today. Well, How's you, it look? You traded over nineteen hundred today, so uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. It took eight months to go from uh, twenty fifty high close down to the sixteen seventies, and it took you about eight weeks to get back over nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, uh, we think that in that asset category, the the gold component of the commodity category, that silver is a better place to be. Mm-hmm. This is a technical assessment, uh, long term, and the miners are a better mm-hmm. place to be than gold itself. Now, gold mm-hmm. is the mama, so you got to watch mm-hmm. gold. But uh, mm-hmm. as gold goes up, those two other the silver and the gold and silver miners should outperform gold, and that's a better place mm-hmm. to be, in mm-hmm. our view. Um, and uh, you know, with the Bitcoin collapse, uh, which by the way we nailed pretty well uh, back in April. Uh, when it dropped to 59000 it was about $6,000 off its high. We said, uh-oh, uh, there could be a sharp drop into the 30000 zone. 
And sure enough, it, it not only got in the upper 30,000s, but the lower 30,000s very rapidly, more quickly than we even thought. Um, we think that as a, quote, alternative, especially among younger people, is now been dished. Um, and I don't think Bitcoin, even when it does turn and have a nice rally, and it's an area now where it might build a base and turn up for another rally, it's not going to resume its bull trend. It's going to have to do a lot of work to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not arguing that Bitcoin's going to collapse like it did in 2018 when it went from you know, 20,000 to 3,600. But I think it's, it's, it's wounded psychologically and technically. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a hard time for it to resume what had been going on you know, between 2020 and 2021, which was off the page. I think if there's a new Bitcoin out there, it's going to be silver. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Where you get that kind of geometric <laughs> rise, where you go yeah. from you know, twenty-something, $29 silver, and suddenly you're at 50 and then suddenly mm-hmm. you're beyond those dual highs at 50 um, mm-hmm. And well, I, I think uh, silver's the one to watch is the, the new Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the, uh, the common folks' uh, gold, or the common folks' uh, money, I guess you'd say. Um, uh, uh, Michael, uh, people hear you talk on this show all the time about the big markets, you know, the equity markets, the T-bonds, and the dollar and so forth, but you also, what people aren't as aware of is that you also cover all kinds of other markets. And what I want to ask you about with a couple of minutes left here is the uranium market. The uranium market, uranium has started to rise and I and you do, I, you have provided some charts on uranium. What's your thoughts on uranium at this time? Well, uranium, we turned bullish uh, a couple of years ago, in fact. Mm-hmm. I got very depressed, like most commodities. It was behaving like commodities. In other words, as the commodity cycle peaked in 2011, most commodities went down from there. So did, so did uranium. It collapsed from like 70 bucks down into the teens. Okay. Uh, it turned up, and a couple of years ago we turned bullish, and it's, it's gained ground since then, 10 or $15 since the upturn. And uh, our last report, it was about 29, now it's 31. The real key on uranium, first off, there's no liqu- liquid way to trade it. The futures uh-huh. do produce prices on the CME, but it's really not liquid. So we keep track that way just of the uranium price and its momentum, which is positive. Uh-huh. Uh, but the main thing is to be in the uranium uh, mining, uh, uranium producing companies like uh, CCJ, Cameco. There's uh-huh. also an ETF called URA, which covers a lot of. Uh, uranium producers, including mm-hmm. CCJ, which mm-hmm. are vastly outpacing uranium. And this mm-hmm. is true in the commodity category in general. Uh, in other words, rather than saying buy soybeans, we were bullish at $9.30. It's now up to with 16 or so. Uh, instead of suggesting to buy beans, corn, wheat, sugar, etc., we suggested by buying fertilizer stocks. Mm-hmm. They were equally depressed and mm-hmm. correlated to the grains, meaning if grains turned up, these guys would turn up. And percent-wise, they've done a lot better. Same is true with the uranium stocks. Uh, so the better place to be is not the commodity itself necessarily, but mm-hmm. stocks that have been depressed along with the commodities and are turning up because they, they tend to go up a lot more on a percent basis. Mm-hmm. I think it's in part due to not just that they were depressed like commodities, but a lot of asset managers just don't buy corn futures. Right. You know, oh, of course. Uh, they, they buy things that are related to the grain markets and fertilizer stocks and, and farmland. There's even mm-hmm. some ETFs on farmland. They've done quite well. Mm-hmm. Where farm acreage just exploded. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's the stocks, as I said, with the gold situation, uh, don't buy gold, buy gold miners, mm-hmm. or especially silver miners. Uh, yes. I think that's the better place to be and for the next yeah. several years. 
Well, I agree with you, and uh, we, you know, because of the leverage factor too, and when, when the metals mm-hmm. go up a bit, then. Uh, and they're in the money. All of a sudden, the uh, the profits of these miners can yeah. go up very dramatically. And the senior gold miners uh, I, I saw just recently are are doing collectively are doing better than they ever have. And I think oh, yeah. we're just starting to I see think the Newmont big move. It's all time highs again. You know, it's <laughs> it is, and the and yeah. the profits are really strong. Uh, the free cash flow is just amazing among yeah, the. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked by a lot of these little teeny miners. The little you know, oh, they're, they're, they're the ones that are assembled done. miners oh. get bought up. Uh, absolutely. Those are, the, of course, the ones that I follow in my newsletter. And I might just yeah. add, Michael, there is a, a, a small uh, phosphate mine that's uh, moving towards production in Quebec that looks like a huge winner for me. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's one that I cover called Ariane hmm. Phosphate. And it's one that I cover in my letter. It wouldn't be one that you would have enough data yet, probably, to, to make a good chart. But it's one that I've got my eyes on. And certainly, you mentioned uh, fertilizer. I think you're absolutely right about that. The world has to eat. People have to eat. That's one thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not going to go out of fashion. So, All right. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for uh, your generous um, sharing of your time today. And we, we're always grateful to you for coming on and helping our listeners. It's great to thank have you. Thank you much, Jay. Thank you. All righty. All righty, folks. We uh, do have to take a break now, but don't go away because Lynn Alden will be with me. And we're going to want to hear what she has to say, how she's actually comparing the 1940s with our current situation more so than the 1970s. So, Uh, We'll look forward to what Lynn has to say right when we come back. Don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Lynn Alden. And I should mention uh, the website to go to for Lynn Alden's work and to subscribe to her service is simply lynnalden.com, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com. She has uh, been really quite um, a rising star, I would say. I see her more and more uh, in various interviews on the Internet and various places. uh, And there's a reason for that, because she's been very uh, very astute and very accurate about uh, the way she views things. And uh, I think applying her engineering skills sort of gets under the hood and understands uh, sort of diagnosis and 
uh, and, and sort of explains what is going on and why things are happening in the way they are. It's always good to have that uh, understanding as well. Thanks for joining me again, Lynn. So good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. It's really good to have you. We've titled today's show, Is America Facing Stagflation Like That of the 70s? Sort of what I sort of what I feel as one who lived through that period of time. But when I read your article this morning uh, titled uh, Fiscal Driven Inflation uh, from your May newsletter, uh, I think I, I really had to accept your, your argument that what we're going through now looks more like the 1940s for various reasons. And I want to get into that uh, uh, perhaps uh, maybe right away, but uh, maybe you can talk about the characteristics of the long debt cycle first, though, because that's sort of the the structure that you're looking at. We have this these long periods of, I don't know, 70 or 80 years, perhaps, uh, these long cycles. And as we go through the cycle, it changes. It, it, it Well, I'll let you tell, tell the story. The long debt cycle, uh, and you talked about Ray Dalio first sort of popularized this idea, but, but talk to us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was a concept popularized by Ray Dalio, uh, that you know, the of Bridgewater fame uh, over the past decade, and it's something that I've incorporated into my analysis that I've kind of done a lot of independent analysis on. And basically, what the idea there is that you know you have the normal credit cycle, the five to ten year credit cycle, uh, but normally what happens is that you know when you have a deleveraging event, uh, you don't end up deleveraging all the way back down to the starting point as a percentage of GDP. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, uh, basically policymakers come in, they do stimulus, they, they cut interest rates. And so what you have over the course of multiple decades is you have multiple uh, credit cycles, and each time you end up with higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP, and you end up with lower and lower interest rates as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and that starts to come to a head when you get down to zero interest rates and very, very high debt levels. Uh, and so if you look at, you know, multiple long-term charts, like I presented in that article, mm. uh, in many ways, the current environment looks a lot like the 1940s, uh, and the past decade looks a lot like the 1930s in terms of where we stand in terms of the private uh, debt bubble and the public debt bubble. Uh, and so in that sort of cycle that we're facing now, uh, you know, basically the, the release valve ends up being the currency. And so what they do is they generally do more fiscal stimulus, uh, they have higher inflation levels, while still holding rates at you know near zero levels, and so if you're holding cash or bonds, you end up you end up you know losing over the course of that decade uh, in terms of purchasing power. And so you know, for multiple reasons, I'm I'm finding a lot of parallels between the 1930s and 40s compared to the 2010s and the 2020s. Mm-hmm. And as the cycle matures, uh, as you say, the rates keep getting lower, but the debt to GDP keeps rising. Um, the the central bankers seem to be in control to a great extent, but they can't allow interest rates to rise too much. Is that the reason rates keep getting lower? Because the debt burden is so great, the system can't take it, and so they have to keep shoveling more money into the system uh, to try to keep the, the rates from rising? Is that is that what's going on? That's one of the big factors, yes. And it's also we're seeing a transformation of private sector debt into public sector debt. And so a really good example of that was Japan. Over the past 20 years or so, uh, you saw a significant amount of private sector debt get deleveraged while the public sector leveraged up. And so we're, see- we're seeing that more and more in the United States and Europe as well, where private sector debt is being kind of transformed through fiscal policy and through other policies into more and more you know, uh, debt that th- that's directly on the, on the federal uh, balance sheet. 
And you saw that back in the 30s and 40s, and we're seeing it again play out now. And that is one of the key differences between the 40s and the 70s, in the sense that in the 40s, when they were dealing with, you know, they're fighting World War II, they're doing all this fiscal stimulus, in a sense, and yet they could not, you know, no matter how high inflation got, they could not let yields rise, uh, because that would render, you know, the, the fiscal situation insolvent. Uh, whereas the 70s, the, you know, be, because you had low federal debt and low private debt as a percentage of GDP, Volcker was able to raise interest rates in order to combat inflation. Uh, and so basically most most metrics look more like the 40s than the 70s in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as, as we get towards the end, then um, it's just not possible to, because I, I remember vividly, I mean, I'm probably twice your age, Lynn, and I, I, our first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage when Mr. Volcker was able to raise interest rates. I don't know what the Fed funds rate were, but they were lower than that. But they were double digits. We had double digit inflation. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, where do you think the breaking point is now? It seems like the equity market may be struggling a little bit now. Where the, where the, um, where, where the you know, what, what do we have on the 10 year? 2.7 or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And growth stocks are more more vulnerable than value stocks. And so, for example, bank stocks prefer those higher yields, uh, whereas those really, really high multiple uh, growth stocks, especially the the kind of the the younger kind of unprofitable growth stocks, uh-huh. uh, you know, they're very sensitive to higher interest rates, at least in terms of their valuation. Uh, and so, you know, as the interest rate, if, if for example, a ten year goes above two, two and a half, three percent. Uh, that starts causing significant pain points uh, for the, the, you know, the broader stock market, especially centered on those more growth, growth-oriented names. As the, as this debt cycle matures, or as it get, you know, from its start in through the through the uh, the life of it, it seems as though we have this massive, especially towards the end, massive redistribution of wealth. I've seen that. I think from two thousand eight or so, the Fed. Uh, that you know the deposits uh, the deposits have grown very dramatically but the loans have not kept up with that uh, and so we're seeing money not getting into main street through the lending process as you point out i think in your article you said in 2008 uh, we sort of saw the height in terms of public uh, that is private debt uh, and and so why why does this why what so why does this happen i mean we we have this Redistribution of wealth that has become really very uh, pronounced in in recent years. Uh, why it, does this happen? Why are banks no longer lending out to the private sector? Is it because the private sector is becoming insolvent or, or less prosperous, or, or what? Why do you think yeah, that is? Well, there's a few reasons for that. One, basically, there's a mismatch between the people that that demand uh, loans versus mm-hmm. the types of loans that the banks want to make. And so, for example. The, the types of people that the banks would prefer to loan to, uh, you know, people with you know very high credit scores sure. uh, and that are very you know strong financially, uh, they don't have a large demand for loans at the mm-hmm. current time. They're doing pretty well. On the other hand, uh, you know there are a lot of risky businesses that they would prefer to get loans, uh, and and banks don't have a very large incentive to lend to them uh, with interest rates this low. Uh, and so, you know, because they take on credit risk and all sorts of things like that. And so basically there's there's partially a mismatch. And this, mm-hmm. again, is, you know, the last time we saw uh, this magnitude of, uh, you know, uh, banks really not uh, lending out a large portion of their deposits uh, was back in the, again, the 40s. And so one of the key differences between the 70s and the 40s in terms of, you know, those are, those are the past two uh, inflationary decades of the past mm-hmm. century. 
And, you know, we often think of the 70s as inflationary because that was a more recent one. Uh, but, you know, the 70s were a very loan-driven type of inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so bank, bank lending was, was growing very rapidly. Uh, you also had a rising uh, uh, fiscal deficit that, that supported that. But, very, you know, for a significant part of it was very loan-driven inflation. Mm-hmm. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you had commodity shortages, especially oil shortages from abroad. And so the, the difference is that the 40s, you know, ba- it wasn't really driven by bank lending. It was driven by uh, basically fiscal stimulus. Mm-hmm. And so basically what happened was the banks end up buying large portions of those treasuries. And so banks are indirectly lending, but it's through the federal channel. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so, for example, you had very fiscal-driven inflation. And the, the, you know what makes that different is that it can spike up very, very high, and that it can go away, go away very quickly if the if the federal government you know stops running those deficits. And so, in the 40s, you saw these. You know, it basically you had inflation go as high as 20 percent, and then literally disappear the next year and kind of stop going up. And then you had, you know, another year later, you'd have it spike up to like, you know, 12% and then go back down to like 2%. And so that kind of weird offer on inflation is more driven by by fiscal, uh, you know, kind of the, the fiscal direction, uh, whereas it's not, you know, the 70s was a smoother type of inflation because that was more bank loan driven and, and, and kind of more from the private sector side. And mm-hmm. so basically what we're seeing now is that because things are very fiscally driven, there's not a lot of lending happening in the economy. And mm-hmm. so banks banks are basically stuffed full of treasuries and reserves uh, rather than making a lot of private sector loans. Right. So, I mean, I think that your answer to my question is, in in fact, the, the large majority of people, the mismatch that you talked about, the people that are not credit worthy but need the money. Uh, so we've had a drain from the middle class that's, that's taken place during this cycle. Maybe you could argue the same thing happened in the 1920s, um, back in the days of the robber barons and so forth. But uh, I, I wonder to what extent this redistribution of income from the middle class to the top 1% or 10% or 5%, whatever you want to break it down, to what extent that is playing out uh, in this political populism that we're seeing, not only in the United States, but in other places in, in Western Europe and places like that. No, I think I think those variables are very much connected. And so, you know, again, that there's similarities going back, uh, you know, to the, the 20s, 30s and 40s, uh, where you had very high wealth concentration. And then, uh, you know, you got rising populism out of that. And then that resulted in more redistributive type of policies. Uh, and so we're seeing a similar event now. We have, uh, in many ways, very, very high wealth concentration. And over, over the course of the past decade, there, we're seeing more and more kind of pushback uh, against that. And so I often conceptualize as a big pendulum that swings back and forth between, uh, you know, labor politics having more power versus capital politics having more power. And so currently we've been very much on the side of capital. Uh, and because, you know, uh, labor has been you know, damaged by, for example, offshoring and automation, it's very, it very much reduced their kind of bargaining power. Uh, and so we're very, very far on the capital side. And the risk is that, you know, you can you can push things back towards the labor side. And mm-hmm. that can be, you know, basically you, you change uh, different segments of the population about how well they do. And mm-hmm. so generally when you have more labor uh, power, it's, it's good for wages, but it also pushes down generally uh, asset prices. Uh, and mm-hmm. so when it, when it comes to navigating a portfolio, it helps to kind of, uh, make, you know, kind of focus on those trends. And mm-hmm. one, of the thing, one of the things we've seen, if there's a big difference between now and the 1940s, is that in many ways the United States looks more like the United Kingdom did in the 1940s in the sense mm-hmm. that back – Back in the 40s, the United States was, you know, we were a major creditor nation. Yes. That we, we, we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of, of our assets. Right. And we were, we were an exporter. 
Uh, and so basically, you know, at the time, we were kind of the, the China of the time. We, 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 you know, we were an emerging market that grew up into a powerhouse. And then we were, we were selling things, uh, say, for cheaper than the United Kingdom could. And we, you know, we, we basically were rising power. And so uh, now we look more like the UK in the sense mm. that, you know, we're running trade deficits. Uh, you know, we are, uh, you know, we are a net uh, a debtor nation, meaning that foreigners mm-hmm. own more U.S. assets than Americans own of foreign assets. Uh, and so basically, you know, most metrics look a lot like the 1940s, with the exception that we're also going through it with a trade deficit and mm-hmm. as a debtor nation. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that certainly played a role in, in wealth concentration because, for example, you actually see somewhat lower wealth concentration in Japan or Europe uh, than you do in the United States now. Uh, and that's in a large part because we've, we've uh, exported a large portion of our manufacturing base mm-hmm. and other types of blue-collar blue jobs at a faster rate than most of those other developed countries have. And so we, we've really kind of you know, made our economy quite top-heavy in terms of those that do well versus you know, really kind of you know, accelerating the 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 shift uh, away from blue collar jobs, and mm-hmm. that, so that's that's you know partially been responsible for ho- hollowing out the middle class mm-hmm. at a faster rate than you you see in some of these other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And but I have to wonder, Lynn. You know, with the transfer payments, the the, the stimulus money going out, the thousands of dollars to millions of investors. I mean, to millions of American uh, lower paid people with lower paid jobs. Uh, I have to wonder if this, if the threat of sort of some wage inflation might not be brewing because, uh, you know, you're hearing reports all around the country with the stimulus checks. People are saying, well, why should I go back to work when I actually make more by not working or slightly more or maybe not quite as much, but I don't have to work and I can use my time to do some other things. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, restaurants and smaller, you know, smaller businesses that are having a real tough time finding labor. And I have to wonder if that's not going to force wages up. You know, you can you can try to mandate minimum wages and so forth, but this might be another way of doing it, just to the extent Mr. Biden is able to do it, to keep sending trillions of dollars to individuals uh, to sit on the couch. Uh, well, to get them to come back to work, you're going to have to bid up the wage price, the wages, right? I think that- we're seeing that. I think we are seeing that to some extent, and that can put upward pressure on wages uh, and uh, then, by extension, upward pressure on prices. And mm-hmm. an example that I used recently was that the you know the, the Chipotle uh, stores around you know my area uh, they they started to do these days where they basically had online order only days because they uh-huh. had to run they had to run like a tighter ship because they didn't have enough labor and then there were a couple of days where they had to just close early because they were they were out of labor mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so that that translates into higher labor costs so we saw for example Chipotle did a national campaign where they were going to start paying uh, higher wages uh, both to to, to uh, you know the kind of the basic workers as well as the store managers, uh, and uh, so we are seeing, and that's that's you know pretty much got to trickle through to the um, you know to the food prices. Uh-huh. And so I, I do think you know after a pretty long stretch of not really having a lot of wage growth, I think we are on the verge of of more wage growth in part because of these policies. But the key, you know, there there are still some dates to look out for. So for example, some of those you know the key unemployment benefits uh, expire uh, in September. Uh, and so, you know, those are unlikely to, to be renewed because now, of course, we have a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of pushback against those policies because mm-hmm. of, of, of the impacts they're having on, you know, places like the restaurant industry. And so when you look out past September into maybe the fourth quarter of this year, we have to see how sticky some of those, uh, you know, wage increases are. And so a lot of companies, for example, they've, they've 
been reluctant to rage raise rages because they see kind of light at the end of the tunnel for these these uh, unemployment benefits. And so instead, they try to do things like bigger sign-on bonuses, basically larger one-time uh, payments in order to, to encourage uh, workers to sign up. And so we have to see basically as we go into quarter four of this year, how much of that kind of sticks through, uh, you know, after some of these benefits expire. Um, yeah, it certainly has to be a question. Uh, I, I wonder, with regard to the dollar now, um, you know, there's some concerns. Um, some large hedge fund manager whose name escapes my memory right now uh, was really voicing concern, I think, on CNBC last week sometime about… That would be Stanley Druckenmiller. Ah, thank you. That's exactly who I was talking about. And uh, he's really concerned about the dollar uh, it seems to me that if every, if all the other countries are doing the same thing, but maybe we're being more aggressive than some of the other our trading partners in terms of printing money and, and doling out freebies, or maybe maybe the Western countries were doing more of this in the past, and now it's something, I don't know, what are your thoughts? So do you see a threat for the dollar somewhere down the road as a result of, of what's going on now? And you know, you mentioned that we're now we're now uh, you know we're where the UK was in the 40s, kind of. So we're not in a in a position of strength as we were in the 40s, or as China is now, it would seem. Yes, I've been dollar bearish since October 2019, uh, when the dollar index was about 99, and so I've, I've it's been one of my key themes of kind of tracking this go down. Uh, and kind of pay attention to uh, you know p- uh, various counter rallies that happened. And so obviously in, in the uh, the March period of 2020, we had a curveball from the pandemic that briefly pushed up the dollar. Uh, and uh, you know the first couple months of this year, we had another kind of counter rally. And so I've been monitoring these these counter rallies. But overall, I, I remain structurally dollar bearish. And there's a few reasons for that. One is uh, that the U.S. runs uh, structural trade deficits, uh, whereas our biggest trading partners, you know, China, Europe, uh, Japan. Uh, they they run more balanced trade situations, uh, and so you know when 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 basically when we're running pretty tight monetary policy compared to the rest of the world, as we were, for example, during the the period of quantitative tightening in 2018 2019, uh, that you know that tends to be a more strong for the dollar. But as soon as we kind of join the rest of the world in having rather loose monetary policy, uh, our our currency tends to fall because the natural you know uh, direction for it to go is down because of those mm-hmm. trade deficits. Uh, the second reason is that uh, in 2020, uh, in part because you know we we have more wealth concentration and and more, uh, you know we we basically export our supply chains at a faster rate. Uh, mm-hmm. The United States did do larger uh, fiscal stimulus as a percentage of GDP compared to most of those other countries. Uh-huh. And so and so for example, if you look at broad money supply growth on a percentage basis year over year, uh, the United States had something like 25% M2 growth uh, last year. Uh, and Canada was also pretty similar, but most other, uh, you know, European nations and Japan, theirs was more like 10 or 12 percent uh, year over year. Uh, mm-hmm. And so basically, we created more money, and so it makes sense that our that our currency devalued by by roughly that same amount. Uh, but that, of course, takes takes turns over time. And so, for example, uh, during the the past several months, we've seen uh, Europe, for example, has been more aggressive with monetary policy in the sense that they're doing you know faster QE and they're they're holding their interest rates at lower levels, uh, mm-hmm. but overall, if you look at you know broad money supply creation as well as inflation-adjusted interest rates, by those metrics, the United States being more aggressive in terms of devaluing its currency. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think what, before we run out of time here, I want to ask you what 
given what we're just talking about now and what you're seeing a 40s more of a 40s scenario how is that impacting the kind of kind of investments that you're making Lynn and I know that you're very generous in sharing your thoughts and what you're doing with your at least with your paid subscribers uh, and I should tell people that you know this this article fiscal driven inflation and all the other so many of the, your, your newsletter is really free it's available at least that part of your your work is free uh, but um, wh- how is it impacting what you what you're buying and what you're investing in so generally, I, I, in some ways, I maintain an all-weather portfolio, but uh, I tilt it in different directions based on on what asset classes like to do well. And mm-hmm. so for a while now, I've had more of an inflationary tilt in the sense that I'm I'm more tilted towards value stocks and growth stocks. Uh, I'm more tilted towards commodity stocks, precious metals, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, we've used uh, uh, allocations to Bitcoin, even uh, basically with risk management in place. Uh, mm-hmm. And basically, by having exposure to some of these more uh, you know these asset classes that that in many ways benefit from currency devaluation. Uh, you know that's kind of benefited the portfolio, and I do think that those types of things are likely to work well uh, through the 2020s. Uh, but it won't be in a straight line, and so there will be periods of time where uh, you have kind of a, a more disinflationary cycle uh, within an otherwise uh, inflationary trend. And actually, if you go back to the 1940s and the 1970s, you know, inflation was not a straight line in either of those decades. You had you had periods of rapid inflation, sure, and then you ha- and then you had cooling off periods. And so you can have these significant counter rallies in those other types of assets. And so mm-hmm. basically, what I what I try to do is keep the big picture in mind in terms of the types of assets that are likely to do well in the 2020s, like value stocks, precious metals, commodities, things like that, uh, while also kind of paying attention to this more rate of change things. To see, you know, when 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 there are times where we might want a little bit more cash or growth stocks in the portfolio as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, uh, with more specific information uh, and what you're buying and so forth, you do share that with your uh, with your subscribers, don't you? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, my my free newsletter comes out every six weeks. We do reveal a lot of portfolio positions, uh, but then the uh, the premium service comes out more regularly. Uh, and has more portfolios that the people can use, uh, you know, to kind of, you know, maybe to add that to their own kind of, you mm-hmm. know, their own investment style. Sure. And I should mention that your uh, your premium is is very reasonably priced. I I would suggest that everyone listening to this show could certainly afford it. So it's not like you're getting stingy with your uh, you're very kind to, I think, to make it available at a, at a price that most people can afford. Um, my oh, a minute left. Um, I, I wondered if you could take 30 seconds to just comment real quickly on the repo market. Maybe that's unkind to ask you that, but we're seeing more action in um, the repo and I think the reverse repo market. Are, is it anything we should be keeping our eyes on? I'm keeping my eye on it. I, I covered it in my last report, but essentially what we're seeing is the opposite of September 2019 when we had the repo rate spike. So mm-hmm. that was a that was a situation of too many T-bills and not enough reserves Whereas right now, the issue is that there's actually too much reserves in the system. And so banks are basically spilling that over into reverse repos. And it's actually, we, we had kind of a similar thing happen back in 2014, 2015. Okay. All right. Well, people want to really understand this stuff. They should sign up for your letter and, and get on your uh, on your website, uh, which again is lynnalden.com, I believe. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for being with us. Always, always great to have you. And um, thank you. Thanks, Folks, that is it. You bet. Thanks. That's uh, that's it for this week, folks. Next week, I'm going to have David Rosenberg with me, and Dr. Quentin Henning uh, will update us on some of his uh, some of his. Well, he's going to talk about the silver-rich polymetallic project in Bolivia. That's really, I think, a, a very exciting story. So, 
I hope that you'll join me next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 